Welcome to the Advanced Tech Podcast, bringing you news you won't hear in the mainstream media. Hosted by Alexandra Moxon and Adam Dimitrick. In our weekly format, we'll review notable tech news, provide tutorials, and interview a special guest who is defining the technology of tomorrow. Sponsored by Adapt Tech Solutions, building software that defies convention. Get your startup off on the right foot for the future and avoid the dreaded MVP rewrite. Get out of your legacy code trap and get trained in modern software architecture practices. Visit adapttechsolutions.net today to see why we're different. On today's episode, we have very special guest, Michael Feathers, author of Working Effectively with Legacy Code. So people have been asking why we're called advanced tech media instead of advanced tech. Adam, what, uh, what do you have to say about this? Well, we have had people mispronouncing it uh, or asking if we missed a letter, but it's on purpose. We don't want to be in the past tense. We want to have the content that shows how the future is going to be and how different people are pushing things forward. So we want to bring you the news and uh, interesting interviews about the future, not about what's already advanced. So that's why we have advancedtechmedia.org as our URL, not advanced. So when you're telling your friends about our podcast, make sure to specify it's advancedtechmedia.org. So why advanced tech media and not advanced tech podcast? The reason that we wanted to go with media as an organization is because we didn't want to focus just on podcasts. We wanted to incorporate video and we also wanted to have a platform for other users to be able to join the organization and cross promote and just opens up a a lot of other opportunities. Yeah, this has been done by other organizations uh, as well, which started out as podcasts but later on incorporated not just their own podcasts to the mix. JetBrains has announced that F-Sharp is released officially in the Project Writer IDE. This was hinted at last time we reported on this, and within a week, JetBrains has released that, so everyone can go ahead and download the early access program version of JetBrains uh, Writer and uh, check it out. So very good news for people that like functional programming and are in the .NET space. Mastodon continues to grow as an alternative to Twitter with currently over 500,000 users and over 1,500 instances. So for some background, Mastodon is a free and open source alternative that aims to decentralize social media If you're interested in seeing how the instances grow, go to mastodon.social and follow the link for all instances. Next is our segment on free and open source software, where we showcase one or two popular projects or platforms in the open source world. If you're interested in downloading video from YouTube, you can now use YouTube DLG. It's a multi-platform GUI for YouTube DL. This GUI lets you download multiple videos at once and can automatically convert downloaded videos to audio. It lets you select the video quality and many more things. Lineage OS is a replacement for the popular Cyanogen mod that was taken over by Cyanogen, a company. So I will be trying out Lineage OS on my phone, and if there's any issues or problems, I'll be reporting here. But uh, if you have a phone that you that is unlocked and you want to try Lineage OS, go ahead and uh, take a look at all the different builds for the different phones that exist. And now for this week's announcements. 
Coming up on Saturday, May 13th is Future Camp, hosted by Nicholas Badminton Futurist. It's going to be at the Red Academy, which is 1490 West Broadway here in Vancouver. Uh, Future Camp is an unconference that brings together the keenest minds in the Pacific Northwest to discuss and debate where the future is taking us. And just a reminder about Linux Fest Northwest coming up on May 6th and 7th at Bellingham Technical College in Bellingham, Washington. Joining us on the show today is Michael Feathers. Welcome to the show, Michael. Uh, Hi. Please tell us a little bit about your background in non-programming. Non-programming background? Yeah, it's not a common question I would get for a podcast. Um, <laughs> gee, how do I basically sort of sum up a life, right? Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I'm a bit older now. I have gray in my beard. Um, I've been around the software industry for years. Um, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and I still live there, even though I've spent like about half my adult life, you know, in other countries and other states, just going and doing work in various different places. Um, but Miami still feels like home to me. Um, I have two children. Uh, they're adults now. Um, uh, I've always been very curious about just about everything. So I read lots of books, uh, lots of online reading as well. And I've had that kind of passion since I was like, you know, late elementary school, early middle school. Um, so learning is just a, a very, you know, key thing for me. And I've always been interested in music and um, didn't really do very much with that in my teens. I kind of, at a certain point, felt I wanted to have a career in music and I discovered I really wanted to eat also. So I kind of moved into uh, you know, alternative avenues of making a living. Um, uh, graduated from high school, spent a couple of years kind of bumming around a bit before going to college and started going into a couple of different areas. My first major was math, was architecture. And I found I couldn't draw as well as everybody around me who had been drawing since they were kids. Um, then I majored in mathematics and electrical engineering and got into computer science and that kind of stuck. And so I just kind of launched on from there into my career life. Cool. So that brings us to your background in programming. How did you get started out and what was the industry like back in, in those days? Um, it's kind of a funny story with that because Programming, I actually knew about it, but I avoided it for a long period of time. Um, see, I graduated high school in 1982, and I think in the late 70s or so, Radio Shack, which is a U.S. You know, corporation, had put out some of the first you know, available personal computers, even before IBM PCs. And a friend of a friend had um, a TRS-80, which was one of these computers. And I remember going over to his house and hanging out, and we would actually like store programs on cassette tapes. Actually, they would just sort of you know, they just had like a sound encoding that would go on to like the set tapes to go back. And I remember looking at this and saying, wow, this is kind of fascinating, but also having enough awareness to realize that if I got into it, I'd probably miss the rest of my teen years. I'd become so immersed in it. So I actually just kind of deliberately left it alone for a period of time and moved on into other things. Um, it wasn't until later after I majored in mathematics for a brief period, um, a friend of mine was um, a math major also, and he had a job uh, doing data entry at a local company. And um, so he tried to go and get me to go and sort of go through the university process of going and getting a job in the same place, which was really painful because they wanted to go and select where you would go. And I said, no, I want to go to this particular company. And I was doing a lot of data entry work and decided that it might be fun to go and teach myself programming. So um, the programmer, there was a single programmer at the company. This is a company making demographic software. He was a C programmer. He was also a math major at University of Miami. Just really, you know, um, 
half max and we kind of talked quite a bit and I just wasn't sure I was smart enough to be a programmer. Right? So I thought, okay, well, I'll set myself a goal. I've heard that C is the uh, most difficult programming language out there. So if I can teach myself C, I'll switch my major and kind of go into it. Um, it's kind of funny to sort of like imagine going in and thinking, hey, if I'm a math major, I'm not smart enough. But that's just where my head was at that point in time. Uh, so I started doing some programming on an IBM PC at that time. And the first program I ever wrote was to do something called a Keenon mapping. And that's something from chaos theory. It was part of um, something I learned in a um, Scientific American magazine. It was a, an author named A.K. Dudley, who basically had like this mathematical recreations um, column every month. And um, he was showing these chaos functions in math that had like the, these very organic, you know, they almost looked like, um, like cross sections of cells. And I thought it was just fascinating that simple recurrence relations in mathematics could go and form these very biological looking things. So I just wrote a program to go and actually do this, um, had the graphics and everything, put it on a floppy disk and actually sent it off to the guy who wrote the article at um, Scientific American. He wrote me a nice letter back. And so I was kind of, you know, given some, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't know, I guess, kind of improved my self-esteem around the entire thing. Um, and then I went to school to learn computer science and switched my major and uh, kind of digging in. So yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Cool. Um, so on that note, what drives you to get out of bed in the morning to do what you do? Oh, my alarm clock. Pretty much. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but um, I'm just, um, I, I guess it gets back to that thing I was mentioning earlier about, you know, when I sort of introduced who I am, it's like I'm just very curious about things. And um, so that curiosity goes extends into all different areas of systems, you know, like social systems, technical systems, mathematics, all these other things. So. Um, I don't know, I just kind of look at each day as being an opportunity to go and learn more, you know, and I'm always looking for uh, kind of like the rules in a way, the things that kind of uh, make everything tie together, because I feel like there's, um, there's the world we live in, the universe we live in, and then there's all these uh, kind of like the substrate of principle in a way that kind of keeps everything orchestrated. And the more you learn about those things, then the more you have, the more you have understanding of those things, the better off you are when you're making design decisions. And beyond that, it's just fun. So that's kind of where I come from. <laughs> cool. I remember reading on your um, your website about how code is almost alive, and you can think of it that way. So it's really interesting that you um, mentioned the bio biological aspect. Yeah, I find myself getting into that more and more these days. And I don't know why. I, I'm not sure if I've seen anybody else come and make the same observation, but it seems like, yeah, I guess other people have. It's just, it seems that once systems become very complex, they become kind of like biology in a way. And um, I can try to remember now. Um, gosh, I can't. There's um, uh, one of the um, people in the industry I really have a great deal of respect for, uh, Richard Gabriel, was involved in artificial intelligence in Lisbon in the 1980s. And um, he was given a grant, I believe, to do some work into um, some research institute going and trying to figure out the qualities that you might have in software when it becomes too big to understand by any team, for instance. And what can you really expect when you have giant systems that are hard to go and actually figure out where to make changes and stuff on those lines? And what he really ended up with was that they are kind of like biology. And uh, so, yeah, that's again fascinating. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so, who would you say some of your mentors and sources of inspiration are? Hmm, I guess in the industry, um, 
I was very, very influenced by several different people. Um, Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham are two of my key inspirations. Also Robert Martin. Um, I feel like they kind of counterbalanced each other in a very interesting way. Um, I met Kent and Ward, I think in 1997 or so at an object-oriented programming conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, what was fascinating for me was uh, their humanism in a way. Um, to kind of like put this into uh, perspective, at least you know, in the middle 80s, excuse me, middle 90s and late 1990s, there was this sense that programming is a job and jobs are supposed to be rough and you just go in and you do your job and that's just what's expected of you. And um, I went to this um, evening session that they had and um, they were talking about pair programming, which was something that was unheard of in that day, right? But I walked in and saw them talking about how to choose a good office chair to sit in for doing your work. And I thought, oh my God, we get to be human beings at work, right? And, um, you know, it's funny to go and relate this story to you now. Um, it's amazing to, re to sort of like just consider how far we've gone in the industry, you know, that the human component of, of uh, work in the software industry has uh, been, you know, recognized at a very deep level. And I think it's great. And, you know, I really credit them with kind of like getting the ball rolling on all of that. Um, I know it did really sort of turn my head around a bit. Um, I remember going back to the company I was working at. Um, my boss, who became a friend of mine, uh, uh, before I'd gone off to that conference, um, every once in a while, he was a manager, he would come over and sit with me and we'd program together because he missed programming. And I learned a lot from him and I think vice versa, right? And um, the funny thing about this was that we always felt guilty about this. We thought, hey, here we are, two people at one keyboard doing work. And so he'd sort of, okay, we've killed an hour here. It's like we've eaten up enough of the company's time and go back to my office. And I remember going back to him and saying, no, this is just, this is acceptable. We can do this. And there's a good reason to do this, right? Um, so yeah, beyond them, uh, um, I mentioned um, Robert Martin. I worked with him for a long period of time. Right as Extreme Programming and Agile were first getting underway, I joined um, Object Mentor, the company that Bob had started. And um, I think from Bob, I got a, a rather different thing. Um, I remember I, the way that I got to know him was there was a, a Usenet news group called Comp Object. And, um, you know, we would just go and exchange information about object orientation. I just was the kind of guy who would just like dig in really deep into all these subjects and learn everything I could. And he invited me up into Chicago for an interview. And um, I remember, you know, before that, just being kind of fascinated by the way he applied metaphor. Um, he said, really, an object is just basically a jump table to functions. That's the way he kind of explained object orientation. And that was like almost like a great undoing of this thing of like saying, hey, you know, it's all kind of like, you know, these, an object is like an object in the real world, and it's all metaphorical for things we have in the real world. And it's like, okay, this is a mechanism. And the thing is, it's like, it's not like seeing things as mechanisms, seeing things as representations of the real world, and seeing them as like, say, biology. There's no one of those things that's true. The great thing is that we can basically apply those frames uh, whenever we need to, to get a different perspective on something we're working on. And um, so, yeah, he's a, a very rigorous thinker, and I've learned a lot from him over the years also. And uh, so, yeah, I'm my mentor, so. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so what would you say are some of the emerging trends you see in your field, and what would be important to learn and consider in the next five to ten years? Oh, boy. You know, as far as emerging trends, it's like once you start thinking that once to name, you begin to realize it's like they're just, you know, they're becoming ubiquitous today, right? So functional programming has been around for a while. 
Um, the whole microservice thing is kind of coming. It's like kind of going into abeyance and people are trying to figure out how to uh, sort of make it, um, uh, you know, how to measure up against, you know, what we had before monoliths and figure out how, you know, what path we're going to go down. I really don't see where that's going to go and sort of resolve itself. Um, I am rather excited, though, by um, CQRS and event source. Um, I think they're rather interesting. I'm not, there's um, a lot of open questions that I have about that approach right now. And I think that's something that uh, um, I think more, many people in the industry, including Adam, are taking into. I think there's, uh, there's something there. Um, on the testing front, I think that um, we'll probably see more interest in property-based testing than we have in the past. Um, it's powerful in the sense that it helps you think about your design as you're doing it, much the same way the TDD does. Um, if you can find a simple set of properties to describe the thing you're working on, then you're probably on the right track. If you're determining like a, a large complex set of properties, it may, you know, um, it's one of those things that would not, uh, might indicate you're on the wrong path. Um, beyond that, and I'm, I've been talking about this for a little while, um, but I haven't really seen the uptick of it yet. I really think that um, programming languages based upon um, some of the ideas of APL are due to come back. And um, for people who are listening who may not be aware of what APL is, um, it was a programming language developed in the 1960s, and it was developed as a notation for mathematics. The idea behind it is that um, you can treat data in a rather uniform way, regardless of whether it happens to be a single piece of data, a vector, a matrix, or some n-dimensional entity. You can determine operators that can go and work on that data, regardless of its dimensionality. And um, you can just kind of compose programs that's just like strings of those operators. And, um, you know, it has a bad reputation in the industry because of the fact that the initial language used all these very arcane symbols. And if you look in the APL program, there's no chance of understanding what it does coming from like a C background, like C++ or Java or C Sharp background, even Ruby. It's just totally alien. Um, but I feel that there's something deep that's going on in a way because it's very much like the type of program that we do with like say link and rx and java strings so we kind of like have an operation dot an operation dot an operation and just string things together um, but the um the pieces that apl presents are really higher level pieces these are operations which allow us to do lots of you know um, very interesting computation in a few short steps um, but I think it's going to take a little while for us to get there, but I think it's something that's rather promising. What is one thing that's important in programming that you would say people should continue to not leave behind or get distracted by shiny new things? What is that sort of core for you about programming and some of those pillars of good programming and a good way to, to construct software, maybe uh, with and without a specific opinion of a language? Um, yeah, that's kind of tough. I, I, I think as I've kind of moved on in the industry, I've begun to realize, you know, you can really do work in just that any language. And I still have, actually have a love for C, despite the fact that like Rust is coming along and go and everybody kind of looks for things that are going to be the replacement. Um, but uh, yeah, you can do good work in just about any language. Um, I think that, you know, a, a strong emphasis on simplicity is, is vitally important. And it's one of those things you have to really work for. You have to really kind of uh, sometimes tweak your solution to arrive at a simpler solution. And if you can, sometimes tweak your problem so that you don't have to have a more complicated solution. That's a, a more tricky thing. Um, I think in terms of um, 
of really learning more in programming. The thing that's really kind of helped me a lot over the years, and I didn't really realize early on I was applying it as a conscious strategy, has been to basically try to learn two things that are kind of the same but different. And then you start to see how uh, decisions have been made differently. And then you understand the underlying principles that kind of you know, um, express themselves through different solutions. Um, so to give a simple example, it's a bit dated now, but like um, when C-sharp first came out, um, I, I think everybody in the industry could just only really understand it in terms of Java. And um, you really had, um, there was a real benefit to learning both of those languages in a very deep level and also learning um, about the different choices the language designers had made and uh, the library um, uh, developers as well. Um, when you see something different, you get to ask yourself, why do they do it this way? And figure out whether it's just a matter of differing philosophy, whether there's like there's different um, design affordances for using doing things in a particular way, um, all those things. And um, I think those are the things which kind of help you sort of like think beyond the surface of, um, of software. Uh, the more examples you have of things that are kind of the same but different, the more you're able to sort of like focus on the essential bit. And I think that's helped me an awful lot. I think it helps in getting um, insight into design, insight into uh, kind of like helping you, you know, train your intuition. Um, that thing that kind of helps you when you say, oh, well, you know, I kind of feel this is the better way to go. And it takes a minute or two to realize why. But that first intuitional sense often, um, to me, it feels like it's a side effect of doing that kind of work, of working in uh, you know, things that are kind of the same but different. You touched on that one interesting point and in that reframing the problem so that can solve it better with a program. Traditionally, a lot of the academic approaches to teaching, let's say, object-oriented programming are classic noun is the class and the uh, a house is a door and there's an open method on the door and that kind of stuff. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're getting at is that generally that may not be the best idea and it's better to rephrase the abstractions in terms of the wording of the problem than the sort of superficial words that were initially used to describe the space within which the problem exists. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's part of it. I, I guess what I was really kind of getting at is like, um, uh, say somebody goes and comes up to you, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, but you, um, they say that we need a new feature in this system. And then you look and you say, wow, that's gonna make my code very complex. And you're kind of like, do you really need that? Or it's like, what if we did things this way? Um, basically bearing in mind that this might go in and help you arrive at a simpler uh, solution. Um, I think sometimes actually being able to challenge the problem in a business context is useful. And things you're not gonna win all the time. You're just gonna, you're gonna say, no, no, we really need this. There's a business reason why we need this particular feature. And um, you know, then you basically have to sort of like eat this complexity you know, that you would have otherwise. I'm sorry, I don't really have one, you know, a particular solution coming in mind right now. Um, but as to you know what you're saying earlier about like noun names and stuff like this for classes, um, yeah, I, I found it very useful to be able to trade off, like in a design context, I'm always kind of looking at um, different ways of looking at the same problem that basically go and give me a different hint about whether I'm on the right track or not. You know, there's this, I mean, a simple example of this is like saying a drawing program, you might have, you, know, you might have like a rectangle class and a triangle class and a circle class and stuff like this. But you may find that, um, you know, pulling away from your real life understanding what these shapes are, um, having a, a polygon is going to cover like 90% of the cases that are not curves, right? So maybe having like a, a curved shape class and a polygon class, for instance, is enough. But that's you basically going and sort of like informing 
it's basically bringing your knowledge of the domain forward from, uh, uh, yeah, just your knowledge of, you know, what's easier computationally um, and uh, what you have underlying primitives that you can use uh, to, um, to what underlying things you can leverage um, as opposed to going and being really having high fidelity to the um, original conception of the problem. And I don't think that there's any real formula for this sort of thing. I think the, the thing which is kind of powerful is to go and be able to look at many different things and sort of say, what's in the union here, excuse me, the intersection of these things. And um, you kind of wait for that aha experience you know, when you're trying to do that sort of thing. Um, pretty funny thing to kind of like just end, like end this question with. Um, there was a guy in the industry, Dave West, and I remember going and talking to him one time, being rather exasperated as a young programmer, saying, you know, I noticed that some people just kind of get it. They become really good designers, and others really struggle a lot. And I'm like, what is this, Dave? And it's like, I knew he had many more experience, years of experience than I did. He said, you know, Mike, well, you know, some people read and other people don't, right? And he said that in a very offhand way, but um, I think that there really is something fundamental to that. It's like if you read fiction, you read philosophy, you read science and all these other things, all these things give you different frames that you can apply, you know, um, to the world, different ways of understanding things. And, you know, even just having like a wide reading list for, say, literature or various newspapers and all these sorts of things, you, you know, if you were to get back to like, say, class naming or something like that, you have a, a bigger lexicon, right, that you're able to go and draw on when you're trying to find good names for things. So programming is really this process of conceptualization. And um, you're always like finding, trying to find the right concept that fits something. And the wider the palette of concepts you have, the better off you are. So is this, uh, I guess that kind of dovetails to the next part that I wanted to talk about is if people get these abstractions wrong, is, is that one of the ways that we get into what you coined as legacy code? I guess it's been 13 years now since the book was out. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's hopefully the problem would go away. It hasn't gone away yet, right? No. Um, <laughs> is that kind of the root cause of uh, people's yeah, interpretation of the problem and they they keep uh, piling on different interpretations of not just the code, but the design. Uh, more basic, yeah. just laziness. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I guess part of it is laziness, but part of it is also like, um, what's the best way? I, I had a really interesting experience this early in my career. So the first job that I had out of university, um, I worked for a biomedical company. And it's like, as much as in the, um, uh, the early days of Agile, we kind of like talked about waterfall process and we were kind of like rebelling against that. Many people I met had never really encountered a full waterfall process. Well, I actually lived it. This was a biomedical company regulated by the FDA. And we would spend months working on a refinements document and months spending, you know, working on a design document and months working on an implementation document and then writing the code, right? So we actually lived this process. And, um, I remember that we had so much deliberation around our design and we, because of very long product cycles, we were able to go and take time to go and revisit our code and our designs. We ended up having some very nice clean code, right? Um, and uh, like I said, that was my first job in the industry and then I moved on from there and began to realize that essentially without that kind of deliberation, things kind of fall apart rather quickly. And um, it comes down to this thing which is very close to biology, like we were talking about a bit earlier. It's like, um, whenever you have a system where there's a bias towards keeping an existing structure in place rather than tearing it down and replacing it, you end up having something which looks kind of like biology, right? So you have the main trunk of the tree that you're not going to wholesale replace the main trunk of the tree. 
um, but you kind of grow around it. It's easier to add on and um, change internals slightly than to go and actually tear down structure and rebuild it. And so I feel that's why we kind of get into this, um, this thing of having abstractions that just kind of grow a lot over time. Nobody takes time to go and break them down, all that sort of thing. Um, that feels like that's part of the character of what uh, comes into being as legacy code. And so I'm guessing out of that experience is what motivated you to write the book eventually was what, what brought you to that? Uh, there's, there's gotta be a, enough of a motivation to do something like write, spend time to write an entire book and it's not a easy uh, thing to do. So maybe give us the background of, of uh, how that, uh, how your experiences led up to that point of uh, either frustration or motivation or whatever. So, as I mentioned, I was involved in the early um, extreme programming community. And so extreme programming was a, an early agile process. The idea behind it was that if you do these 12 practices together, you're going to end up with something wonderful. And um, so this is first formulated by Kent Beck and Ron Jeffries based upon some ideas by Ward Cunningham as well as themselves. And um, it was very, very controversial in the early days. But I knew from my experience that it seemed like it would have a good chance of working. Um, the thing about it, though, is that the entire process was um, developed in the context of going and doing a rewrite of an existing system. There was a system that was failing at a company called um, Chrysler in Detroit, and uh, they decided to go and rewrite the entire thing. And um, so they were able to do TDD and all these things and build things up. Um, as extreme programming became well-known in the industry, um, people wanted to try it. And there were many teams that had large existing code bases that didn't really have you know, you want to be able to refactor, but you don't have any tests. So what do you do, right? And I noticed as I was basically coming into teams and helping them try to go and basically adopt this process, they ran into that problem immediately. Um, at that time, I was very fascinated by test-driven development. I'd done a bit of it, but I never really had done as much as, like, say, Kent Beck had done. And um, there was a funny thing that was going on in the community at that time is that I think Kent had just finished writing his um, Extreme Programming Explained book. And he was very adamant that he didn't want to write a book about test room development. He just felt like, I, I just really don't want to do this right now. Um, so I thought, hey, I can be the person that writes this book. And um, there's at least one other person in the industry who had roughly the same idea. And we talked back and forth about it. So I felt like doing this. I started writing that. And then I started realizing that in my work, I was doing this all the time, this other thing, and going and trying to get tests in place around existing code. And so I thought, okay, I don't know which book to write. So in my off days, I was like working on the TDD book in the morning and the legacy code book in the afternoon. And I figured, you know, this is, this is unsustainable. So one was going to win. And um, I finally gave up on the TDD book and thought, okay, look, this is, this is valuable. Nobody's talking about it. Um, these techniques I've learned with teams, if I write them down, um, that'll be great. I put that in the world and I get to move on to other things. Um, of course, the thing is, that's not quite what happened. Essentially, then you basically begin the person gets called in to look at all the ugly code bases in the world. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of become my, uh, my niche in a way. Yeah. Maybe you can uh, explain a little bit for the people that are listening that aren't familiar with the book, um, how it's structured and uh, maybe why people should read it and, um, you know, what you hear from people um, that come up to you at conferences and, uh, uh, you know what what uh, what was valuable for them what you, what the feedback is over all these years I mean it's been 13 years so you must have had yeah. a number of conversations about the book with a variety of people sure yeah um, as far as structuring that was the thing that was the toughest about the book I had a lot of 
theory I basically wanted to lay out about um, approaching a legacy code base and concepts that you could build upon to go and do the work. And so I started writing the book in that way and then realized halfway through it that that's not, that wouldn't be valuable for people. So I instead decided to go and have like a brief section of like exposition and then name every chapter after a particular problem that people have within a code base. And um, that ended up making it far more accessible to people. Um, so that's what it was structurally. It's kind of agonizing because I basically rewrite the, rewrote the entire thing in a couple of months and then found I couldn't even look at it because I couldn't, you know, there's passages you can't read more than 15 times without not being able to read them anymore, right? Um, so I went through that process. Um, I think the thing that was interesting about putting the book out there was to see how many people really, uh, it became more of a cultural thing than a technical thing that people were saying, look, you're finally talking about the real stuff, right? Um, that so often people in the industry who kind of, uh, push themselves forward and, uh, gain a podium to in some sense, um, we'll talk about the, you know, the, the blank sheet of paper and how you build a new system based upon that. And I'm kind of like, no, there's these, these are the real systems we have to deal with day to day. And these are techniques you can use to make that work a bit easier. So there was like a big morale boost, I think, that a lot of people felt from this. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, Steve Freeman, uh, one of my you know, best friends in the industry, and after it came out, he said, you know, essentially some of the, a lot of these things were things people were doing before, but you gave them legitimacy. You know, to basically do these things, you know, that's, you know, you were saying that this is okay to do that sort of thing. Um, there is a, in the book, a strong pragmatic bent to it. It's kind of like that if things have grown in an odd way in your system, you might have to do some ugly things in order to get things under test. But at least once you have gotten things under test, you can make things better. Uh, so yeah, beyond that, I've had a number of people come up to me, quite a few people and say, look, these things have been really beneficial for us to be able to go and start to Feel more of a sense of control as we're going and um, making our work easier within the code base. I get that quite often. That's great. And I mean, for, for the listeners again, uh, the book is mostly centered around uh, object oriented languages, uh, curly brace languages. Is there anything that you could say to the people that are trying to do the same thing in the, from the functional side? Any caveats that uh, someone that might pick up the book that's learning? things in uh, Scala or F-sharp or any of these other languages? Um, yeah, I think because my, you know, I, I do some functional work, but I never really kind of like attacked, I haven't really attacked a large functional code base as a legacy code base in a way. Kind of doesn't exist, right? <laughs> Sorry? Kind of doesn't exist because uh, people that are doing functional programming generally don't allow code bases to degrade, or <laughs> would you say that's true? No, I, I think it's just, it's really just basically just like, like who seeks me out, you know, uh, for various problems and stuff like that. Um, I think that as we see more things move in a functional direction, that is, it is pretty obvious to me that um, a lot of the things that I was really focusing on within the book were side effects of object orientation, immutability, mutability in particular. Um, I won't say that, you know, deep nested conditional structures are like, you know, a necessary part of object orientation, but they too, do tend to happy, happen easier in the context of mutable state. Um, uh, so yeah, things along those lines. Um, as far as, I don't know that I've got any much in there that goes and really addresses you know, the functional stuff that way. Right. Um, I think the, the thing that's really interesting though is that um, 
let me put it this way. When you have objects, it's very easy for you to encapsulate too much. And that's one of the things that you have to kind of like move past in order to go and actually get decent test coverage for things. Um, with functional, you have the opportunity to go and basically take individual functions and test them and do okay with that. You still have the issue of like, um, you can have, uh, uh, let's say in functional, you can have functions that do too much, but you hardly ever, because of the way that IO is often segmented out, um, there's often very little mocking that you need to do. And uh, so that tends to make some things easier also. Uh, so yeah, I'm not sure, it's, it's not sure it's the book for, um, for legacy um, functional programming systems. Well, that's a that's a nice dovetail to the next thing I want to ask, and that's in terms of given how industry has changed and uh, functional programming is becoming more the the trendy thing to do. Given the change of the programming climate out there, would there be an opportunity for you to do a revision of the book and maybe adjust some of the examples or add a, a another chapter or any any plans at all on that i, I know i've been asking you personally yeah, for a while yeah um and it's yeah, just great everyone else maybe they can get the answer too it's 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 yeah it's um there's another book that i'm working on that i haven't really it's it's been kind of a lot um a long time in development i was it was originally a book about error handling but now it's more about reducing conditionality and removing error cases removing edge cases from code and I'm hoping to get that finished soon. But the thing that's really funny with this, I was actually with um, a company and helping them develop curriculum internally for some of their developers need to go and learn these techniques. And I realized as we were, you know, sort of like brainstorming, you know, what topics to go through with this, that a lot of them really aren't in the first book. And it's kind of like, you know, there really is a place for a sequel, but it would be less, um, it's more about bigger systems things, um, uh, how you approach larger refactoring, stuff along those lines. Um, and also some team dynamics things as well. Um, and I think that there's also a lot of things in the first book that could simplify drastically. Um, I think a lot of the dependency breaking stuff that happened in the first book, that's really uh, the bulk of the last part of the book. Um, um, I have better heuristics to help people sort of select among those different techniques. I think I would actually um, reduce them to a smaller set this point in time because they're just not all equally useful so no uh, in other words there is no plans to do a second revision to add those things oh there is yeah after this other book after this other book okay so we'll just keep reading <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's uh, um that's great but that's wonderful there's another uh, book coming up and i i believe that uh, i think you were talking about uh, removing Unnecessary condition and uh, conditional code and uh, unnecessary exception handling in in your uh, uh, talk at uh, build stuff, I believe. Uh, yeah. So that's been sort of uh, something you've been taking on the road for uh, for different speaking engagements. Yeah, right. yeah. It's um, it, it's funny with this because I'm kind of like getting the con the concepts all to gel in a way. Um, the main concept that I'm trying to really get a good handle on is something I'm calling an edge. And um, it's kind of an abstract thing, but when you, if you look like a go-to and a label within say C for instance, that's an edge, it's a point of discontinuity in your code, right? So it's something you basically go and take the control flow and you basically just sort of like zap from here to there. 
The same thing is true with um, exceptions, right? When you're dealing with an exception, you just have like a non-local go to in a way, be able to zap from one place to another. And I think that those things in general inhibit understanding. They kind of get in the way of understanding. And um, you can even make the case that, you know, ifs and else's um, have, uh, they, they have this edgeness to them. They're, there's they're points of discontinuity. And to the degree that you actually allow scopes to intermix in a way, like you can have variables that a scope outside the if then else, and then they're used inside the if, then your block is just going and grabbing things from the outer scope. That's kind of messy also, right? Um, so this, this kind of thing of having discontinuities inside your software is something which is a bit problematic. And I know that every time that I try to remove them, I end up going and learning something and making things a bit simpler at the same time. And so it's really about that kind of concept. And you can even see it at the user interface too. Um, it's like if you, if you have like a, a purchasing process, for instance, and you immediately go ahead and start asking uh, the user a series of questions because they've done something you don't really consider to be the normal case, um, that's kind of obtrusive and that's not really usually considered good UX design, right? The better thing is to kind of like sort of, you know, make some assumptions and then check them out with the user as opposed to going and saying, wait a minute, you haven't given me everything, right? That's very disruptive. So it feels like there's a commonality across these different things. And um, I have examples I can basically go and draw in for all these different things. And I think it's a matter of kind of like tying them all together. Um, my fear with this is that it might be a little too abstract in a way, you know, but I do have solid advice for a lot of these different scenarios. So I guess I have to sort of finish it and get it out there. Right. So um, how has that uh, subject sort of solidified? I know it's been a number of months since you presented that uh, in November. Uh, yeah. Build stuff. I've had a chance to refine uh, some of it because, like you say, it is kind of abstract. I remember being in that uh, uh, in that presentation, and you really had to listen closely. It wasn't uh, a passive uh, subject that you could sit in as, you know, guided through other presentations, especially at that conference. So, um, have what, have you changed anything to make it uh, more digestible? Um, I've done uh, reorganization, which is kind of like what I did for the legacy code book, focusing on particular problems. But it's not really, it's not really problems, it's really more like particular approaches, you know, particular ways of seeing things. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there's, um, I'm able to like fold in things like tell, don't ask that we've had forever in the industry. And, um, you know, the idea behind um, that you don't want to go and pass nulls into code because we know that that's problematic. But I think there's a deeper concept below uh, this thing of not wanting to pass nulls, which comes down to uh, information flow. It's kind of like you don't want to go and create something that's has to interrogate later in a way that's more complicated than when you have the information to create it. And so like getting a handle on these kinds of design, you know, bits of design guidance um, is really what that's been about. So it's moving along. So in terms of your uh, change of focus and with this new book, uh, in terms of uh, your day-to-day, -day, your consulting, obviously you're, you have your consulting company. And uh, how, how has that changed in terms of your audience and who you generally work with now as opposed to, let's say, 10 years ago, who you would engage with and have sort of, uh, you know, really good uh, traction with and make a really important difference for an organization? You know, there's a lot of... Obviously, the, the the real obvious question is for most is that can Michael help us with our legacy code base? But 
how, how has that evolved in, in terms of where you find uh, you bring a lot of value just so that uh, you know, some potential people that are listening can uh, say, hey, that's me. Um, I'm going to give Michael a call. Um, well, you know, the, the edge stuff is relatively new in the sense that I, I do apply it when I'm working with people. I kind of like explain those concepts. And I think it's like any um, skills development thing where you, you get a concept and then it kind of changes you. And then you basically apply that concept going forward and just stop. It helps you go and make some better design decisions. Um, I think in terms of value, I'm still seen as the legacy code guy, right? And um, that's fine, right? So I basically come in and I help out with situations, uh, particularly when people are trying to break down bigger systems or refactor from one set of, you know, abstractions to another. One of the things I do is quite often I'll help people sort of like um, stage refactorings from a particular structure to another structure over time. And, um, and then there's the general thing of getting tests in place to enable this sort of thing. That's uh, still a big part of what I, um, uh, what I try to get across. Um, and uh, it, it's funny with this, because when I work with the object matter, I worked with them for quite a while, Bob Martin's coming back in the early 2000s. Um, it's funny because we were doing consulting, but our emphasis was on skills development more than anything else. Um, so we basically come in and basically say, okay, well, look, you know, we're working on this problem. How would you approach it? And then somebody would tell you, and you're like, okay, well, what about doing it this way? And here's why we're doing it this way. And um, I feel like uh, having done that for so many years, that really is a part of my, um, my focus also. It's just uh, uh, showing people a different way of doing things. Um, pointing them to a concept they may not have been aware of, um, helping them you know, increase their design chops. And um, that is a natural segue from here I've got this crazy code base. And I don't know quite what to do with it. My developers feel exasperated by the entire thing. Uh, so yeah, that's been a lot of my focus. So a lot of uh, mentoring then coming into a, into a specific organization and uh, growing organically to, to see sort of what the scope of the problem is and how many people want to need to do it. So I mean, you know, I'm kind of wondering how, uh, how a typical engagement looks like if people, you know, I always thought I was a number of places with, with horrible code bases and I was like, ah, oh, gee, you know, I have this book from Michael. I wish, uh, I wish he was here <laughs> to help me uh, convince my bosses about, you know, letting us all learn some of these concepts, but, uh, you know, the usual cracking of the whip happens and we don't have budget and just get on with it. Um, so what's, uh, you know, what's the, what are the timelines? Cause I'm sure a lot of other people are in the same space. They're like, we don't even know where to begin to even ask for, for bringing someone like Michael in to do that. Is it generally, uh, something that's as little as two days or do you spend a couple of weeks? Um, what's the typical sort of, uh, uh, thing that, that happens and what, what, what was successful? So usually what I do, so with anything where you're basically sort of like working on, um, longer term problems and developing skill, um, it pays to go and have multiple points of engagement spread out over time to sort of like allow things to be digested. And so, you know, quite often I'll do something like, okay, well, I'll come and I'll visit you, you know, two or three days a month, and we'll do that for a period of time, six months to a year. And I'll work with different teams each time. I try to get the teams to go and sort of um, communicate their knowledge to other teams and kind of spread it through the organization. And uh, so that's kind of like a good way of going and seeding things. Um, so sometimes it'll be, you know, the same team multiple months and we're working on a longer problem. It's really great these days that you can do so much remote, you know, essentially like, uh, 
with video conferencing, it's very easy to go and just pull up a, a browser and uh, just sort of tap in and sort of see where people are in Slack, for instance, and and help along as they're moving. The thing, the thing with this though, too, is by the time people get to me, it's because they realize that they have a problem, right? And they, you know, it's like you mentioned, it's like, oh, I, you know, I walk in and I see they have a problem, but nobody's really concerned, and they know they've got bigger things to do. By the time they get to me, it's kind of they realize that it's important for them to do something. And I think that's just because of the book, right? Essentially, uh, that's you know, they they hear about me and they kind of reach out because they they have this sense that this is the direction they need to go and sort of like apply some effort to it. And do you do you generally also uh, recommend any uh, ways for the teams to grow, or um, maybe um, they may need to get out of a legacy situation, legacy code situation, or get into a productive space? Uh, do you then uh, come in with uh, maybe another set of people that you usually go to, like a, a set of consultants that you trust to go in and maybe look at a certain stack, maybe if it's Ruby or some other language? Um, how uh, because sometimes maybe uh, you know a client might might say well that's great advice and uh, we can move slowly but we really have some timelines um, how can we um, how can we move this along and do you I think I'm very good about that you know I really should sort of like foster more relationships that way across the industry there's a couple of things I've done with some other people um, uh, but um, yeah for the most part if it's a language I'm very familiar with I'll just step in and. You know, apply effort. If it's something which is I'm not familiar with, I'll just back off and say, "Sorry, I'm pointing to somebody else." Um, yeah. So that's pretty much the way things have gone. Anything else we haven't touched upon? I mean, I really wanted to make sure that uh, you get a chance to say what your next plans are and promote the next book. But I guess it's a little early for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, oh, no, I was just going to ask you if there's any upcoming. Um, conferences or uh, workshops that you're doing or anything else that people can uh, look into and maybe different parts of the country or the world that you're going to be in if they want to uh, go see you present and yeah interesting so um i will be doing a conference in june called devsum in stockholm i'm giving a talk about scaling and just the general concept of scaling and what it means in many different domains and how that kind of uh catches us I think go to Berlin in November. Not too much on the conference front right now, and I don't really have any public courses um, set up at this point in time. Uh, but yeah, just I've been kind of busy with client work. Well, that's a great opportunity yeah. for, for people that are perhaps uh, running their conference to reach out to you as well, maybe, and see if that's yeah. available, right? So yeah, that's definitely. great. So what we'll do is we'll include those dates at least for uh, for people that are listening in the show notes. And when the podcast is aired, they mm -hmm. can go and follow that. And if they're in that area, they can uh, uh, sign up and hopefully see. Sounds yeah. cool. Great. Yeah. Well, Michael, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Um, if people yeah. are looking to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, either on Twitter at, at mfeathers um, or just by email, uh, michael.feathers at gmail.com. is probably the easiest to say okay. across video audio. Yeah, thank you as well. I've known you for a number of years, and luckily we had you in Vancouver when I was part of the Agile of Vancouver. Yeah, um, that's a great conference. So <laughs> it was always nice to have you. Thanks. It was great to come. So it's great. Yeah. We're hope you're going to do something similar again. We're revamping a lot of stuff here in Vancouver. So great to come up. Yeah, and always, uh, always a pleasure to see you. You're one of the nicest programmers out there <laughs> that I've ever met. <laughs>
So it's always always a pleasure, and I hope I hope to see you well before build stuff again. Yeah, hopefully let's make that happen. Okay? Exactly. All right. Okay. All right. Take, Thank take you care. for the time and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Okay. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.